Hi, I'm George Techmanchamp. This is Easton Target Podcast number 186. And I'm here with Steve the Big Cat Anderson. And Steve, it's a momentous occasion in the history of our sport this month, next week. It is the 30th anniversary of that flaming Easton arrow that opened the 1992 Barcelona Olympic Games, something that a lot of folks feel is maybe the most iconic Olympic opening ceremony in modern times. Certainly the coolest one I have seen. I haven't seen a lot of them, didn't pay attention to a lot of them, but I always thought it was it was very cool. And then as I obviously became involved at Easton and saw the arrows actually used for it, very cool. And you know, I was I actually had made a paper chain to count down to the 30th, uh, so 30th anniversary of this, so very excited. Well, another person who's very excited about this, you don't sound very excited. <laughs> no, it is. I mean, how about somebody who's genuinely excited about this? And now we're joined by Greg Easton, the chairman of the Easton Companies, as well as a member of the World Archery Executive Committee. And Greg, I want to thank you for taking the time to join me. Um, You've been at the World Games uh, for the last few days, uh, watching Compound at the World Games. Obviously, the Recurve uh, event and the Barebow event are still coming up. Those are field archery events. But uh, what are your takeaways from this showcase event? Uh, A lot of us have made a lot of effort in the last few weeks to try to drum up a crowd because we knew that that was going to be getting some attention from the IOC. Yeah, yeah, it's right. I mean, this is not the first time Compound has been in the the World Games, uh, but uh, it is interesting to be here and and see it uh, in in competition with that overlay you said of sort of the importance of a, it's not a step per se, but a part piece of the puzzle for that Olympic game uh, question and something that the both the IOC and the organizers from LA 28 look at is come come view the sport and and see it now obviously here at the world games they're shooting outdoor uh, competition so it's not exactly what was proposed to the to the IOC and to the organizers but it still allows them to see the sport. Um, as a matter of fact, they were there, spoke to, spoke to some athletes about the sport and uh, to World Archery about, you know, the positioning and uh, how the sport works and just for them to get a, a feeling for it because they, they, again, my understanding, which is uh, not complete by any means, but it's really a collaborative evaluation between the IOC and the, and the organizer, in this case, LA28, to decide which, which disciplines these are called they would add to the to the archery sport you know greg one of the things that uh, might possibly be a very positive aspect of this is uh, and, and maybe it might not be looked at that way by all circles by any means but you know the fact is that the medalists in this world games event really were a pretty good cross-section of a lot of the world we had representatives from central america the the americas we had representatives from europe and we had representatives from south america as well as asia and so I think that that kind of underscores the universality of compound. Yeah, absolutely. And you're right. There were, were countries from around the world, which is which is good to have, and also uh, you know good a good gender mix too, which is also valuable. I think for the sport and for its presentation and how it how it shows up is that there are um, both a lot of different countries and a lot of different a lot of different athletes. And it was yeah, it was fun to see them. Uh, um, you know, it's a very hot, uh, very hot and humid environment. It was. Uh, 
not too comfortable, you know, to watch when you're in the sun, but I, I can't imagine how hot it was for those athletes out there when they're in the sun for all those hours and how hot it gets. So, well, Greg, if, if nothing else, it showed off the athleticism of compound, um, you know, with the athletes being able to shoot such great scores in honestly tough conditions in, in Birmingham, Alabama. Yeah, absolutely. You know, just, just sitting out there for a couple hours, it really, it's, you first sit down, it's not that bad, but it really kind of builds up and gets you start feeling quite hot and uncomfortable. And, and again, for the athletes to have to be standing out there, especially during the qualification rounds is just, uh, again, that is a, a testament to their, to, to their athleticism. Um, and, and for that matter, too, to the crowds, there are good crowds, there, good enthusiastic folks. And, and for the most part, sitting in the sun and watching, watching our sport. So uh, we also appreciate the, all the, all the fans that came out too to support everybody. You know, it's interesting. If you think back 30 years ago at the 1992 Olympic Games in Barcelona, we had very hot and humid conditions like you just had in Birmingham, Alabama. And this month is 30 years ago that a flaming Easton arrow lit the Olympic flame at the stadium in Barcelona, uh, Montjuic Stadium, beautiful venue, beautiful city for the Olympic Games. And one of the people standing on the top of a podium with a gold medal around his neck is the fellow that just snuck into the conversation. It is, ladies and gentlemen, the Olympic gold medalist of 1992 Barcelona in the team round, Juan Carlos Holgado. Hey, JC. Hello, Todd. Hello, How are you doing? everybody. Happy to be here. Uh, but you just make me older 30 years ago, my yes. God. <laughs> yeah, but you were it's just a big, like you were such a, you were so young back then. It's all good. You know, I so, saw a picture you in, in Barcelona the other day in, in Facebook, you put it, and we both look younger. <laughs> yeah, you're right. We did look younger. I had hair. You still do. Yes, yes. Uh, fighting hard for it. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, the uh, I, I think it's it's uh, interesting, you know, in our 100th year at Easton, um, to look back at the 70th year of Easton, when, um, with a lot of work by some Easton engineers, um, the ability to build that flaming arrow and have it stay lit and fly out over that stadium. Um, which by the way, I, I can't imagine them having the nerve to do that again, but uh, it would be a beautiful thing if they did. Um, that was just I've such a moment. I, I think it's still the most memorable opening on uh, lighting on the, on the flame. Still people talk to me nowadays when talking about Olympic, that this was the one that they was more impressed about it, it was something quite unique it's absolutely i often correct. wonder if it i often wonder if it was a bit of a a pinnacle or even a turning point for the ioc to say that was fantastic but we can't keep trying to do something better because they can get more risky right yeah. whether you're shooting an arrow or whatever is next so whether the i i have no idea but whether the ioc to the organizers said you know we need to we need to make sure the flame touches and the, and it goes off right we can't they can't risk it and the a little bit in the same note, I've had many people over the years ask me, well, did that, did that arrow really light that flame? And I have no idea. I, I wasn't involved, but I said, I'll tell you what I think. I think there was probably three or four ways to light that flame. There was a giant flume of gas up there, yeah. you know, three or four meters wide and 10 meters high that you had to get a spark through it. And I, I think, and fortunately, uh, uh, Antonio Robello got that, got that arrow through there and, and, and made it go off. I, yeah, I he shot a perfect shot. That. First of it, yeah, the, the shot was perfect, and that's the outcome of it. Doesn't matter so much if it was the arrow who flamed it or not. But I can tell you the inside a little bit. 
the, the idea came in a brainstorming in an office with uh, many people talking about how to open it. And someone said something like, okay, why wouldn't throw an arrow, a flaming arrow? I even looked to this person and said, like, it's crazy. And the crazier came like, wow, that's a great idea. So they started working on it, trying to find how it works. And the first thing was they managed to put the kerosene on the, the gel that was inflammated. But then when they were shooting the arrow, it was stopping, not lighting. But it was going the out. The flame yeah. was going off. But then they started deciding we have to put a cone. We have to put something on the tip to open the air. And that's when the bow became critical because they start with a 40-pound bow. But with 40 pounds, with the arrow so heavy, with all this thing on front and all the changes you did in the arrow, it was no way to reach the 69 meters that was the distance to the, to the uh, flame. So what they decided is to go to another bow. And Antonio Reboyo has some hunting bows. The bow that they shoot was 72 pounds. <laughs> I could not wow. throw it, George. It was, yeah. So that was the first. But I remember the day of the openings in the front line. Yes, we, I was there in the opening just below the stage where Antonio Reboyo was. And in my side was Vladimir Shev. George, you know him very well. Of course, world champion. World champion, he did the world record 90 meters for many years and was president and is the president of the Russian Archery Federation. And when, when Antonio shot this arrow, he looked at me and said, but that's not fake, it's a real shot. I said, yes, yeah, a real shot. I looked at me and said, you Spaniards are crazy. That's, that's <laughs> mean it was a risk to miss. The shot was technically not so complicated. The complication was that you can only have one shot. <laughs> you couldn't miss it. And now in the rehearsals, in the trainings, there was several months of training. Every weekend, Antonio was living in Madrid, going to Barcelona, making the weekend training. It missed very often. And then the normal miss is the arrow was short, was hitting on the lower base and was landing on the seats that were under the. Yeah, no, <laughs> the not, base. not good. Not good. So I have seen some seats. I, was, I watched the training a couple of times and some seats burning. So the day of the opening, Below, there were people sitting. I was like, I cannot yeah. believe it. There were people below. So there well, was a risk to me. That's why he has not armed guard, because he started shooting with the arm guard. As soon as the string was touching, the arm guard was going short. That was the reason he has nothing else that he has the arm the shot. Another thing that people don't know is that the flame was huge. So when the flame was turning by the wind, there was a moment Antonio could not see where he was aiming. So that was quite... Oh, the flame on the end of the arrow. Yes, the yeah. flame at the end of the arrow was it's a long one. It's more or less, I don't know, 30, 40 centimeters, sometimes half a meter. So when yeah, he was turning on the left side, he could not see where he was aiming. So that was another risky part. Yeah, Antonio <laughs> so, yeah, told me the level. secret of how he made the shot. And what he told me was he put his knuckle of his bow hand on a certain spotlight in the yeah. stadium. He figured out an index in the stadium to aim from and if that flame obscured that index you can only imagine the adrenaline yes totally right and and in the in the trainings several times he got burned in the hands because if the wind was turning and the flame was coming to the arm so imagine the day of the open if the wind come and the flame is coming to him it's a risk the other thing what people don't know is you know there is a kind of rivality between madrid barcelona oh yeah two region two cities so there was a moment that after several weeks of training, someone figured out that how a guy from Madrid can open the games from Barcelona. <laughs> <laughs> so they say, okay, no, we cannot have that. So we have to find a second archer. So they found a, an archer from Barcelona. And uh, suddenly Antonio arrived one weekend and there's another archer there. And he said, I was a backup just in case you have a problem, but 
of course, the guy was watching. I was trying to figure out how Antonio was getting the reference, what you just mentioned. <laughs> And he was going, Antonio, how you aim, Antonio? I don't know. I just look there. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. How, do you do this? how do you make the reference on the face? I don't know. It's just instinctive. And then... So it ended by a competition, a cold war. Every mm. weekend he was going there. He was trying to make the shot. And sometimes we were doing strange things, changing reference, because a guy tried to film him and tried to find out how he was doing the shot. Close to the opening ceremony, Antonio, from 10 shots, he was making eight to nine in the perfect spot which was two meters over and just center because there was a huge uh, gas coming out, a column of gas. Yeah. And the other guy from 10 shot was having four or five rides. So one hour before, both of them ready, dressed, waiting in the stadium, in the waiting room, didn't know who was going to do it. And it was just one hour before that someone came and said, Antonio, you will do it. So imagine the stress for Antonio, both of them sitting there for two hours. Yeah without knowing if they will be the chosen one or not, both dressed, both ready to shoot. So all this behind the scenes stories, people don't know. You see Antonio coming out shooting, but the amount of pressure he had. He has a mental coach for six months. He was making mental training for five, six times per week, half an hour with a, video, with a tape, recording that's programming the shot. The amount of work and preparation for one shot of a couple of seconds is amazing. Truly the shot of a lifetime. Yep. And probably well, the shot seen by more people in the world than any other arrow shot. Yeah, there was a poster that Easton created um, after those games with that iconic photo of the Ark of the Flame, which was picked up by, you know, this was a shot on film back then. And uh, several photographers got some fantastic shots from the side. So you can trace the flight of the arrow going all the way to the cauldron. And that poster uh, said that for one iconic moment, uh, it reads something like, more than 2 billion people watched an Easton Arrow perform in the 1992 Olympic Games. That's probably, if anything else, uh, an undercount. Because if you think about the number of people that have seen it during that time and since, it's, uh, it's pretty and remarkable. It's still, still seeing when you see some highlights of Olympic. And, oh, it's still in there, yeah. You still see the images of Antonio shot in the Arrow. Yeah. The thing that not many people know is that in Spain, we are very critical with ourselves. So... When they open in, you see the cameras behind Antonio. So you see the arrow from the back. You see that fly, turn, and just disappear in the calderon. Yes. And you see on the bottom side that it's going out of the stadium. So people thought that the arrow has to go in. Yeah. <laughs> so they start, the news the next day is, we miss it. It was a miss. Yeah, <laughs> oh, because it came so, out there. Yes. Yeah, yeah. So because the camera angle, and no one explained that, in fact, has to go over and not has to go in. So yeah. thanks to this uh, poster that Eastern created, I could show to my friend that say he missed it. Say no, no, didn't miss it. It was planned like that. <laughs> yeah, in fact, there was a there was a there was yeah. a landing area that was designated. Yep, they they put fifty feet around with police and the security because it was landing in the back of the stadium in a parking lot that they emptied, of course. But yes, there was a place that was supposed to land. But that was another thing very typical in Spain. You, you have a fantastic opening, it was success. The arrow went just exactly where it was supposed to be. It was lit mechanically by the way. <laughs> it was in the right place. If you look in slow motion, you see the flame come from up to down or down to up, and then you answer the question. <laughs> but the yeah, shot but was perfect. It was a perfect yeah. shot. The shot and was very well, but and didn't land in any spectator seat, which was the most important thing. 
Antonio didn't burn his hand and he could make an amazing opening, but we still in Spain were criticizing that the shot was not perfect because it passed, it didn't go in. <laughs> That's funny. I, uh... the, arrow, the arrow itself. Yes. Yeah, I understand it's missing, but I have no idea. Yes, you know the story. No, no. <laughs> okay, the, the Iron Olympic Museum, the arrow that is there is from the rehearsal the day before. The original arrow that was shot disappeared. No one knows wow. what it is. So, of course, you know, there's all the excitement opening, all that. No one thought about, okay, we have to make sure the arrow come back. So, the story inside story is that the original arrow is, who knows what it is? <laughs> In Somebody's the house. Someone standing there. The one Olympic Museum is the one of rehearsal the day before. And as far as I know, Easton produced how many of those arrows? I don't know, but I've seen half a dozen. Yes. Uh, Myself, but when they start making uh, tests, I think there was three or four arrows broken per each weekend they were going. So I guess you did quite a hundred. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> because they were testing for six months. For six months, more or less two weekends per month. Antonio was going there, making the shot, making the test. The, the biggest challenge was not so much the shot, was the kerosene they were using the product to keep the, the flame alive, to make sure that was not stopping for wind, rain, or any condition. There was a lot of research behind this and in fact the guy in, in the company that was doing this is specialized in, in fx uh, for movies and he patented and anyone after the games when any company anyone wanted to to have antonio to flame something and to shoot something the huge cause was this patent of the kerosene was not antonio shooting <laughs> it was a business behind <laughs> that's amazing well that's great insight and of course uh, that flame uh, inspired a great performance from the Spanish team. And uh, you were there to, you know, King Juan Carlos uh, II was there to watch you and your teammates win that iconic Olympic gold medal. And, and this year, we're seeing top performance once again from Spain. Yep. That was also a turning point for archery, the team round and the head-to-head, -head, yes? Competition yes, final. indeed. Yes. Remember in, in 1990, Jimiston was changing with FITA the, the rules or the competition format, sorry, to make it more exciting, following advice from TV experts, to make our sport more interesting for, for TV spectators, to make it more easy to film, and then to make the story of the match. So we were changing competition format, except the distance, I think we changed everything. <laughs> the time, the, the alternate shooting, the, how we rotate in the team. And we arrived in Barcelona was a format that I think we used a year before was, uh, I remember in 1991, I was shooting in the Arizona Cup and we have a different format. So yes, one year before. It was a format not very well planned. And in fact, in Barcelona, we still don't have the alternate shooting. So we were, TV was filming one team and missing what the other team was doing. So in this time of, of changes, archery really became at the top of, of a sport that can be seen on TV. For all this advice from people outside of the sport that was giving us uh, advice as how to, to broadcast is better. But in, in the match itself, uh, or the competition itself, one of the biggest things that was uh, no one expected Spain to win. Spain, we were not a leading country in archery. Even our own country was not expecting us to win. In the biggest newspaper in Spain, El País, the day before, they were always giving the prevision what will happen next day. And when you go archery, say, optional medal, none. <laughs> that's what I remember the night before I was reading and said, okay, good. <laughs> we have a lot of expectation. 
So, and the King of Spain was in the venue of tennis because we have a tennis player playing there for the final. So he was on the venue of a cluster. We have three sports in this cluster. And when they call him and say, look, these Spanish guys are in the final, then he came to see the final, but he was around and it was an amazing moment because having the King of Spain in, in a hardship competition in the final with the Spanish team is something unique. We never had this experience before. And uh, he enjoyed a good match and it was a memorable moment. But the important thing for us, it was in the time of lunch in Spain at two o'clock. So everybody having lunch in Spain was watching TV archery. <laughs> yeah. You could not have better time of that. It's a bit later. It's a siesta time. So they will be, <laughs> if it's a bit earlier, they're still working. So it was the right time, the right day with the right king and the right venue. <laughs> yes. I think the beginning of the change of the format, I think that, to a, a certain extent, we still benefit from it today. Here at the World Games, there's many different sports, sports that are not currently in the Olympics um, that I've visited. And it's interesting, you, it, many sports you get in and you're, it's, it's going on and you're, okay, what's, what's happening? It's sort of judged, that wasn't a pass, that was. Um, it, it's kind of sometimes difficult to understand the sport which I think before some of the changes, it would have been similar. A big field, everybody shooting, not really paying, not really as a spectator understanding what's going on. The spectators that were able to enjoy the sport today at the uh, uh, park here in Birmingham, it's you know, very simple. You walk up, one person shooting an arrow, they're trying to get it in the center. And, and uh, it, it, I think it's, a, it's a really a, a wonderful thing for our sport that people who, who have never seen it can walk in and understand what's going on. Yeah, totally right, Greg. And the level of sport presentation or our the way to display the results is, is very intuitive. It's easy. You sit, you stay one minute, you understand what's going on. I have seen today three sports, and in two of them, after half an hour, I still did not understand how they score, what they do. It's very complicated. So you are totally right. The effort and we have done and the change of the form and the way to present the sport has been so good that our sport is very easy to see by anyone who has never seen archery before. You mentioned the uh, tennis venue. Um, we were getting complaints at the Barcelona games because the audience was making so much noise. It was interfering with the concentration of the tennis players. That was your fault. You, you shared it to I. <laughs> yes, you're right. It was, I think it was the first time in my life I had spectators. And imagine the first time and you have 2,000 spectators, 2,000 for actually in this time was incredible. With a uh, music band, with... Uh, yeah, the Dutch had noise. brought drums and... Brass yes, instruments. Um, they were making all kinds of noise. It was wonderful. It was great. Was Nobody had ever seen anything like it before. And now it's more or less normal at any archery event. Well, yeah, what I, what I was saying about, you mentioned the, the presentation. It's a very similar thing. The World Archery has invested a lot over the years of improving our, our presentation, which is really the job of the International Federation. How do we want to present our sports? And some of these sports, because we talked about that, not only are a little difficult to follow, what are the rules, what's happening, but the replay, either no replay or the replay was very uh, kind of poorly done. It didn't really show the play. Um, you really miss the, the, I came, I almost came to um, take for granted the quality of our, yep. our presentation until you see some other sports and say, yeah, we, we, we really do a good, a nice job. Totally right. Yeah. And you have been in this process, you know, we were looking in the minimal details from the spectator point of view, media point of view, athlete point of view, coaches from all the stakeholders, all the clients, all the people in the competition to try to please and make sure that everybody can do and see what has to be seen. And when you go to some of the sport here, you see it's missing. So we were talking before 
Drake and I and say, but why is this? And the reason is very clear. The International Federation, the, the owner of the sport, is not so concerned or so aware of the details, how important it is. They know the sport, they understand. And I was watching today powerlifting with the president of the Federation. He was explaining to me what's going on. For me, it was like, wow, I understand now. But Greg went yesterday to see powerlifting. It was more question than answer. Like, yeah. Why is this? Why is there? So we didn't actually effort to compensate this, to make the rules clear and easier and to explain what has to be explained in a very simple way. And as Greg says, we take it for granted. But when you compare this with many other sports, especially not very professional like, like ours, you see that there's a lack of this uh, camera's position, a scoreboard with the right size, the fonts that you use for the graphics are strange. You cannot see them well. Some of them have music, but it's not according to what's happened. They just put the music in the back. Some of the commentator, but they're not very technical. So all these little details all together make a huge difference. Absolutely. And, you know, even today we continue to experiment with format things. For example, uh, earlier this year, the decision was taken to no longer protect the top eight from a first buy. Um, they go right into the bracket. And, um, you know, I think that's been a positive change, but we had to test it for a couple of years to see what the effects would be. And I think that, uh, you know, in the future, not we may see more. Eight, not sure the top Sorry, not surely the top eight thing that is a positive change. <laughs> well, some of them, some of them like the fact that they get a couple of points for, uh, you know, toward the final for uh, for having finished in the top eight. In other words, it's got some other value. But yeah, your your points well made. <laughs> it could be that uh, occasionally some of the top eight might get taken out by number uh, fifty six or whatever, and that could be a problem for them. But hey, good for number fifty six. You know, maybe they had a bad uh, qualifying round, and they can they can bring it for set play in particular. I think that, um, you know, all of these changes, including set play, of course, um, are, are things that have been evolutionary, um, but something revolutionary could be coming up. And uh, just to kind of bring full circle the conversation that Greg and I started with earlier today, um, the potential for compound in the Olympic Games, I, I don't think I was exaggerating in a previous podcast with uh, Rod Menzer and with Tom Dillon and also with uh, Zach Kurtzals. Um, when I said this is probably the biggest news in our sport or the biggest initiative in our sport in 50 years. And of course, this is the 50th anniversary of archery back in the modern Olympic Games. The potential for compound. What do you think, Juan Carlos, in particular? And Greg, um, I'd like to get your thoughts further on this subject. To be honest, I thought that we're never going to see <laughs> this move, but I'm very glad that this is happening. And I was talking today to Tommy in the field uh, and congratulate War Archery for, for not being only leaving this movement, but being brave to do this. And Tom said, it's, 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 we have to try, we have to make it happen because our compound actually deserve it, our sport deserve it. So it's our mission to do it. So I, I'm really glad to see this move. And I told you, I, I never thought it's, I'm going to see it. I, when people were asking, say, it would take 30 years, <laughs> but uh, glad that the opportunity came, that uh, World Archery has taken this lead, is working with the IOC and the Organizing Committee of LA 2028, try to make it happen. If it's happened, it's very good for the sport. I think it's, it's good to have, to show to, to fans in sport a different type of bow, a different type of archers, a different type of mindset, and uh, and brings adds value to our sport in the Olympic. If it's not happening, I would say it was a, a test, and we have to learn from it and try again and try again until it happens. Because it's clear that compound should be, 
the challenges. There's not space for all the sport and all the discipline, but uh, we have to find the ways. And this is the first step. Hopefully, we'll be successful. But if not, I will not like anyone to to be sad for it. But try again. We have to make it happen. Yeah. Well, I, yeah, yeah. And ironically, you know, it's 30 years since Compound became part of world archery. Uh, the Olu Finland World Indoor was the first appearance of Compound in world archery competition back in 1992. Yeah. And Greg, um, I think that this is a significant development. And I think that it is one that is something that all archers, not just compound archers, should support. Because I think it is more archery. And you know, I, I know it sounds simplistic. But more archery is a good thing in the Olympic Games. Yeah, for sure. The additional exposure and the exposure of the, the other discipline and arguably the a more modern look bow and equipment and more technical I think appeals to a different a bit of a different audience from a from a viewership standpoint and so yes I think it's a I think it's a, a, a very good step forward it's the potentially the right time with the LA 28 being you know receptive to new disciplines and things I believe other organizers who were maybe not as uh, didn't have as much time or as as well organized were more difficult to even consider proposing it. So uh, we, we get to LA with them being, I think, ready to accept a lot of proposals, which they do have, by the way, quite a few proposals from a lot of sports. Oh, yeah. um, but uh, Compound is, is, is competed obviously well around the world, but in the US, but also with our compatriots in the, the bow hunting community, having, you know, obviously many of them shooting the compound bow is supporting it also. So I think it's a, it's a good time. Um, it's a, it's a good time for archers and for the compound archers. Uh, challenges, there's a lot of complications, a lot of uh, uh, people, a lot of things for the decision makers, both at the IOC and at the LA 28 to consider. And, um, and uh, you know, how, how they make this choice is going to be interesting and I think very, very difficult for them. They were, you know, a lot of sports to consider and uh, they were out at the venue today uh, reviewing a little bit about the compound and the, and the bow. So it was exciting to see them there and, and listening to world archery, listening to some of the athletes talk about the sport and, um, and hopefully they, uh, as they go back to make their evaluation, they, they continue, continue to look favorably on, on archery. I think it's only in the past decade that we've been able to build the universality of compound as well as the gender equality to the level where we could take a legitimate shot at getting into the games now. And maybe today's event in Birmingham underscored that with medals from Mexico, France, Great Britain, Colombia, the United States, Netherlands, and India. So most of the major continents represented uh, in that medal stand today. And I think that that helped underscore the universality of our sport uh, in the compound realm. And I think that, you know, with countries like Korea making a serious effort to build a compound program, and even countries that traditionally have more or less eschewed the compound, like Japan showing interest in growing compound, I believe this is the time, uh, if not now, as Juan Carlos said, keep on trying. But hopefully we hopefully we'll have a positive result about a year from now when that decision is actually going to be made. Totally right. And I think this, this universality is one of the strengths. It was not good when there's only one or two countries winning medals. Of course, for the country organizing the games, it's good that its own athletes are winning medals, but it's not something sustainable or, or easy to sell 
And the universality we have right now with compound archers worldwide, as you say, is, is really one of the strengths and one of the things that make uh, compound archers deserve to be in the games. And we have got, you know, such iconic women athletes in the compound realm right now. You know, America's Paige Pierce, Sarah Lopez from Colombia, uh, the emerging athlete from Great Britain, Ella Gibson, and many others, Toya Ellison, and, and just so many great athletes in our sport that are um, really working to advance its image and provide for uh, a good case to be made for gender equity and equality in archery. Of course, WA leading that effort with maintaining equal prize money for women athletes, as well as opportunity. That was a decision a long time ago when we decided that compound recurve was going to be the same for war archery and we were treating them exactly the same. And I think the time has proved that was the right call. Yeah, you're absolutely correct. Greg, I think that the, the biggest takeaway today is um, we got a good crowd at the World Games. We got the right image um, with athletes from all over the world taking medals in Birmingham. And I think that uh, gave it our best shot to give the IOC a great impression of our sport. Would you agree? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I think, the, the, like, as I said, the, the folks there from the IOC and the LA 28 got a, got a good glimpse and, and show of the the archers and the art, the, uh, the sport itself. Um, you mentioned Paige Pierce. She did a, a very nice job of uh, talking with with the those some of those decision makers about the sport, about the bow, about the competition, about the universality, about the even the even a question about you know what you know how how close are the are the men and women and how competitive are they uh, among each other. Uh, which is which was an interesting discussion because as as you know as everybody would with the uh, over the years the, the the competition level has become closer and the and the uh, women at many times are shooting better than the men so it's a it's a very uh, it's a very universal sport from that standpoint and so yeah it was a it was a great I think we we put our best feet forward from a number of different areas both the sport the competition the presentation um, some of our athletes so yeah it was it was fantastic and uh and as Juan Carlos said, it's a uh, we, we seems like uh, did it at the right time and, and making the right pitch, and we now continue to do the right things and, and hope for a good decision from that group. And then going from there, we, we uh, if 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 it's not in our favor, look for the next opportunity. Yeah. Hey, shifting gears, something I didn't bring up, Greg. You've got some news. Um, I, my understanding is all that long effort to build that one hundred year anniversary history book of Easton is finally complete. Is that uh, something you're willing to discuss at all? <laughs> it is. I know you've been uh, helping us talk about it and promote it on some of your prior podcasts, which I appreciate, George. And yes, with a, a lot of hard work from uh, our favorite commentator, George Tektachoff, who I, uh, I enlisted onto the committee and the group to help put things together. Uh, Karen Griffin at our office, who's been with us for many, many years, and the project lead, Lorena Milner, have done a, a wonderful job working with the group that's put it together for us, um, but not without a lot of work on, on our side for fact finding and photogra photo photograph finding and people to interview and uh, that sort of thing. Uh, uh, and I, 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 I take very little credit because the team really did a lot of the work for for the the book uh, but the drafts we've seen the the beginning uh, as they showed us the pages in the book itself is uh, very exciting and yes it's uh, it's off to print with uh, 
even the even the not even, but of course also the cover selected, which was a bit of a um, process to really decide what what seems to be the right image for the cover. And I hope everybody, when they get an opportunity to see it, also appreciate everything we did to put that together. So yeah, is it's, it uh, on its way? <laughs> is it too soon to say the uh, release date? Uh, the exact release date will be, it's in September, we are having a uh, basically an anniversary around, uh, we picked a date in September of, a, kind of the, the anniversary of the company, uh, planning some celebrations with employees and that sort of thing, and that'll be the official release date uh, where we'll distribute some copies to employees and, uh, and, and uh, close, close uh, friends of the company over the years, and then be offering it up for distribution and uh, giveaways and that sort of thing after that. Okay. So those of you podcast listeners who uh, very kindly sent your email address into Easton 100 at um, Jazz D Easton, I believe that uh, we'll be, or they will be getting in touch with you um, sometime in the next few months to uh, help get you the information you need to follow through on your uh, interest in getting a copy of the book. And I, uh, I can tell you that having seen it myself, it is a real piece of archery history, not just Eastern history, but archery history in there. And uh, I appreciate what you had to say, but you know, your, your team did the work, Greg, and they did a fantastic job in my personal opinion. So congratulations on, on that. And uh, I just, uh, yeah, thank you. you know, I, I, I think just, it's uh, just able to, we're spending some time recently trying to kind of uh, bring all everybody together and kind of get the different people in the company up to speed. I was down with our my my uh, the people down there in Newberry at the uh, Newberry Archery Center from a foundation standpoint, just thanking them for their support of archery over the years and involvement. Showed them the hundred year video, which was fun to show them that and and talk a little bit about you know some of the things that are in that. In that video, that link's also available probably on the uh, Easton 100 website. Uh, you could drop in the exact links for me. <laughs> Appreciate that. But uh, sure it's will. fun because that group, there are about eight of us in the room and many young, young, young people that are now working at the foundation, but they, they started shooting archery there at the center maybe 10 years ago, went off to school, came back, did whatever. And you know, here, here they are now involved with the sport archers and being coach and that sort of thing and i said you know at a very at the very small scale that's really what the what the foundation's trying to accomplish is inspire growth in archery and you know there they are they got into archery through the center and now they're they're involved with it as a career and so it was really exciting to see that and uh, just uh as I even talked to the guys from LA 28 today at the venue, kind of the draw of archery, there's something innate in our, and I think in human nature, we love the art, the arrow, the draw of the bow, the flight of the arrow, and to be able to watch that. And um, as you know, it's, it's kind of that, that draw and the, and the, and the drive of archery from my grandfather and starting the business, it's all, all coming together and so exciting at this, at this hundred year mark. It absolutely is. Well, Juan Carlos and Greg, I want to thank you for taking the time to join us on the podcast today. I am sure that we'll continue to talk as the months uh, approach, certainly as this decision comes up. And uh, Greg, I'll look forward to talking to you some more about the plans for observing the 100th anniversary of the company, as well as uh, maybe some inside stories on some historical facts and uh, occurrences, shall we say involving the Easton company, particularly as we get close next month 
uh, actually September, to that 50th anniversary of archery back in the modern Olympics, something that your grandfather was able to see. And uh, I believe that that is uh, our next big milestone for our sport, 50 years since John Williams and Doreen Wilbur won the Olympic Games in Munich, Germany. And uh, what a benchmark that's going to be. Yes, absolutely. So yes, thank you, George. Appreciate uh, or happy to be on here with you and uh, look forward to sure sharing some other stories. Juan Carlos, look thank forward you, to talking George. to you again soon too. Thank you, George. Always a pleasure whenever you want. Happy to mm-hmm. chat and talk about archery, the sport we love. Well, at least we have found some people who are excited about being involved in that opening ceremony. It is really cool to hear the first-hand account. Absolutely. All right, folks, next week we will talk some more about Compound and the Olympic Games. Thanks for joining us on this podcast. We'll catch you next time.